Hello, and welcome back to Netflix and Kill. Today, we are celebrating one year since our very first episode debuted, which is awesome. Happy birthday! Yes, happy birthday to us. (laughs) We have multiple guests on this episode. So, Tyler, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, Sure. Uh, How... You know, I'm not sure how you want us to introduce ourselves one at a time. I can give you um, some facts and some 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 lies, two two truths and a lie, as it goes, or two lies and a truth. Um, my name is uh, Tyler. I am uh, Kyla's father, and therefore uh, blood related to Hannah and Marty in some way. Uh, when the next guest introduces himself, it's going to get far more complicated. That family tree. <laughs> Um, I live in Los Angeles, California. I am a, uh, camera tech, I guess. That's, that's my day job. My day job is working on cameras for Netflix shows and and such, uh, that rent from our camera house in Culver City. And I am a freelance filmmaker and, uh, visual artist in, uh, Echo Park, Los Angeles. I'm, uh, a born Canadian, raised Coloradan, and, uh, did my learning in Oklahoma, uh gosh what what do i got i'm i'm one of the sexiest men alive uh i can i can squat 300 pounds a couple times um i consume amounts of food that leave my friends literally speechless um that's about i think those are some decent facts about myself uh that i I could leave you with to chop up as you as you will i think that gives a pretty good picture I hope so. I'll I'll let I'll let Aaron throw some uh or I'll I'll let, I'll let uh guest number 2. I'll let the man behind door number 2 or a woman or person uh give any other descriptors that they they deem necessary. And I realize that's a risk, but I I'm going to accept responsibility. All right. With that, take it away, Aaron. Hi, I'm Aaron. You heard me last year for the Hellraiser 1 thing. I was the weird, vaguely erudite-sounding dude. Um, you also probably heard me at the Tusk. And which other one did I do that same day? Raw. Yes, 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 yes. I did two of those. I have more tangents than a triangle. And, uh... Wait, tangents aren't in trigonometry, are they? Fuck, okay. I enjoy long walks on the beach and the terrifying blankness of humanity. Uh... Other than that... I, uh, yeah. You're here with me, and uh, we got a bunch of tiny people in the chat. Oh, I haven't heard that one in a while. Yeah, uh, uh, Aaron, I was, I was uh, in context of this film that we'll talk about in a minute, I was thinking about uh, stop motion and things that are horrifying. And uh, I remembered the time that we watched the VHS tape of Return to Oz. And I was trying to remember what the the little stone goblin guys that was some pretty impressive animation actually uh, said that freaked him out. And I remember that it was a chicken. Uh, Oh my God. There's a throwback for you. (laughs) Jesus, this is going to be a lot of inside jokes. I'm going to, I'm going to keep it down. I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to not throw that many out there, but I thought of that. I was in traffic for an hour listening to the film, which I'll I'll get to later as we talk about it. And uh, during that, I, I had a lot of thoughts of um, 
Return to Oz that became pertinent. So I just needed to double check that you were on the same page there. That's it for my my tangent. That is actually a fair connection, I think. <laughs> All right. Um, I'll go ahead and let the three of us regulars just go ahead and reintroduce ourselves because it has been a year and a lot of things can change in a year. So I'm Kai. I am graduated now. I am no longer a college student, but I'm still a student of life. And it's working out pretty all right so far. Um, yeah, I paint and draw and talk way too much about robots and watch a lot of horror movies. Nice. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm Marty. Um, I am now a senior in college, uh, still in there, uh, hanging on for the last moment. Um, I'm also doing freelance work. Mostly I'm going to hype up your action stuff. figures. Your, yeah. Your little, I'm going to hype those up. I don't know if you'd classify them as action oh, figures, yeah. but hype, I see hype, the, the hype, posts hype, on the hype, internet hype, and whew. They're, they're art dolls. Um, but yeah, I do those too. I have a capstone for uh, art coming up. Um, I had to drop out of film major based on the fact that I was going to be here for another two years if I didn't. You're still part of the film fam in our hearts. Always. Yeah. Um, I'm done. My, my turn. All right. Your turn. Hi, everybody. I'm Hannah. I am no longer a double major in theater and film. I changed to music and film because it made me happier. I decided, fuck the rules. I'm going to be here forever, I guess, because I will be here a couple extra years. But that's fine because I'm doing what I like and it'll work out. Um, what else? I am a performer sometimes. Uh, I'm a writer, sometimes. Do I get paid for these things? Sometimes. And what else? I'm working on my capstone w with a friend, and hopefully it will have music in it. Um, but yeah, that's that's me. That's me, baby. Yeah! Nice showbiz. Alright, so now, let's get to some blood. This movie has a lot well, of blood There's in plenty it. of that. There's plenty. Did you bring your coffee cups? If not, bring a spare mattress. <laughs> uh, I guess I'll give a quick synopsis, but really we don't need it because this movie picks up exactly where the first Hellraiser left off. It really um, does. With a helpful recap of the first film. Just About in case two recaps. Yeah. 10 to 15 minutes of this film is flashbacks. Yep. I would argue that that first recap is not actually helpful, and that the second recap that's in storyline was much more helpful. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would second that. Yeah. The first part just, like, was confusing because it was just, like, it was, like, last time. Previously on Hellraiser 1. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. And, like, previously on Hellraiser it, it felt like they just really wanted the what ends up being the opening shot of this second one, uh, which is a shot from the first one. They just really wanted that to be an opening shot, and they didn't get the chance to do it earlier. Yeah. Well, for me, they over-explained the first movie and then under-explained, like, a lot of new things. Oh, there are so many gaps. Yeah. Yeah. But it kind of works, though. It's, it's like an emotional experience. And we have wandered into the depths of the hell dimension 
Yes, uh, it takes a while to get there. Uh, it's a it's it's not a it's not a sprint. This this movie is a marathon, despite having a runtime that barely clears ninety minutes. Uh, we are not in hell for very long. No. Uh-huh. No, it's like yeah, literally I would, I would like definitely the last thirty or so this minutes. Film as the first half is called "Beware of the Mattress." The, fir- the first third <laughs> is "Beware of the Mattress." The second third is "Bloody Makeouts," and the last third is "Hell." Yeah, that's a solid three act structure. <laughs> yeah, it it doesn't not have structure. That's true. Isn't there a horror movie called "The Bed That Eats People"? Deathbed of the bed that eats. <laughs> That's it. Patton Oswald added the extra word people at the end. That wasn't in the original uh The bed title. to bed bed. Oh, so it just eats any- anything. Hellraiser 2, bed bites. Bed bites. Nice. Who had seen this film before watching it just now? I have. Hi. I'm raising my hand. So was Aaron the only one who hadn't? I think I might have been. Um, Tyler and I watched this movie together, actually, on Thanksgiving. We uh, there's some very good... We had some, some good quotes from it. I'm trying to find. I gotta scroll way back. Yeah. We ate, like, an obscene amount of pizza, which is honestly the best way to spend Thanksgiving. We did. Most of the quotes had to do with pizza. Also, the best way to eat pizza is obscenely. Mm-hmm. How do you eat pizza? We have a strict haze code policy on our pizza eating yikes <laughs> here's the kyla quote it's um <laughs> it's pretty incredible what you what you said you just you just banged it out uh i don't remember the context but the quote was 80s gore effects and shrieking that's what buttery garlic knots should taste like is that the fourth <laughs> dimension no it's dominoes <laughs> <laughs> that's fucking great <laughs> That should be a bit on advertising. God. Just, That's amazing. Just, uh, that was really good. I'm, I'm glad I wrote that down. I am too, because I didn't remember that. Yeah, we got... I remember feeling sick after watching that, and not from the context of the film, from the pizza order. Is this one of your skills that you uh, detailed, that you can eat obscene amounts of food? I can, and I, I went... Uh, I went to the obscene with how much pizza and garlicky butter knots uh, I decided to eat. Uh, and it was, it was a bad idea, if I recall that night. I think we watched two films. I think Hellraiser 2 was the second one. Yeah, I can't remember what else we watched. I know that it wasn't the first one. Do we need to give a synopsis of it? Is that what works for your structure? I don't think this one needs it because there's not a very complicated plot. Um, the gist of it is, again, it just picks up right where the first one left off. Um, Kirsty is in a mental institution of some sort because everyone thinks she's crazy when she's talking about demons from hell, uh, which is fair. Though her treatment in the psychiatric ward is not fair. I will, I'll give her that. Yeah. No, they're very awful to the psychiatric patients here. Um, she has a dream where she sees her deceased father and he writes a message that he's stuck in hell and needs her help. So she's trying to help put his soul to rest, but tricks are amiss. Some tricks, little treats, lots of meats. There's a, uh, a doctor running the psych ward 
I don't remember how to pronounce his name, though they said it many times, so I just call him Dr. Chard. Um, <laughs> I think uh, it's Charid. It's something. It's Chinard. Dr. Chode? Well, Cho- yeah. Oof, well right. yes. Chode. I don't know how PC we're supposed to keep it, so I'm going to stick with This Chard is an R rated pub. Great. Dr. Chode, it is. <laughs> I know that, yeah, if I may, Dr. Chode is uh, running a secret development underneath the uh, psychiatric ward where he takes patients and uh, he, he tortures them to try to learn the secrets of the universe, roughly. Is that fair he, to say? He basically he has them all like chained yeah. up and like solving the puzzle cubes for him. Right, and only this one girl who has taken a vow of silence or been traumatized into silence named Tiffany is the the puzzle master that he seeks yes i love tiffany and uh we we how we're forgetting a key character guys the mattress the The mattress and then the mattress woman mattress yes julia the mattress woman who uh another good quote from kirsty who has incredible lines uh when she's detailing the events of the first one this is the second recap in the film and it's much more detailed and and she knows way more than she should yeah, she uh, she 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 tells both the audience and Doctor Chard and his assistant Kyle. Um, <laughs> Kyle, quote unquote, it was Julia that bitch. <laughs> uh, when talking about she and Frank's scheme from the first film, and uh, Julia and Doctor Chode uh, managed to get our our gang sucked into hell, where she betrays him, and then he turns into. An all-powerful Cenobite controlled by the giant floating prism called Leviathan. Probably the second most iconic Cenobite next to Pinhead himself, Who gets obviously. fucking murdered. He also has, like, tenta- tentacles with, like, knives coming out of them. There's no way whoever designed that thing that comes out of his head did not use the word penis when describing what is coming out of his head. Oh, there's a, for there's sure. a shot at the. V- oh, the guy who designed it was Clive Barker. Obviously, he made this those references. This whole movie is like extremely sexual. Like this is the last one Clive Barker would work on for these. Oh, yeah. So I know we all talked briefly that most of us have seen this movie before. So um, did it hold up? How did you react to it this time versus the first time? And Aaron, what was your initial reaction? Initial reactions for me, I guess. Uh, I actually thought that, minus the opening, which I sort of slept through, you know, I, f- I, I really do feel like those opening five minutes or so were studio mandated because they weren't quite at 90 minutes yet. Yeah. Um, and if you're putting this in drive-ins, you need, like, it's it's pretty, back in the day when you would see unique movies at drive-ins, you were pretty, they were pretty strict with how you put this shit onto a drive-in. And of course, if it was made for the tape, for VHS. It feels almost... As though the film was supposed to open with a cold open of uh, Dr. Chode feeding the the maggots guy to the mattress and Julia arriving. Because I think the recap comes right before that. Yeah, I think in, in, in terms of like taking something kind of, you know, a little bit, at least by the standards of 80s horror, right? something a little bit complex, something a little bit, you know, something a little bit more challenging than what was than what was typically on the market at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Something I would actually be a, I th- something I think that would actually 
I don't know if it would be successful, but would definitely not be radical if it came out this year. Um, it managed to sort of establish, you know, I wouldn't say raise the stakes, but find ways to take an inherently weird and pretty abstract story and do stuff with it that not everyone would have thought to do. Like Chenard, the the idea that Chenard's relationship with Julia is like a reversal of Julia's relationship with Frank, but now like Chenard doesn't need her to get her skin back for him to find her attractive, which is such a like when he wraps her in medical gauze for me is like one of those, and then you realize, um, you know, that's a prelude to the fact that he actually is one of the very few humans cut out to be a Cenobite, which. At first, I was really not cool with the idea of the Cenobites as humans, but the more I think about it, the more the idea that the Cenobites are just, that any that any human being with enough curiosity and enough pain tolerance could literally work for, I wouldn't say the devil, because they make it re- relatively deliberately ambiguous whether or not Judeo-Christian heaven and hell exists, and I think the Cenobites themselves were originally based on a Talmudic demon or something like that. Very, very originally. On, like, the Dibbuk or something. But the the idea that, like, humans are capable of being Cenobites, which then, immediate, which then sets up, of course, the idea that someone who is literally surrounded by abject suffering, both physical and mental, and is completely nonplussed by it, that that's actually the implication that, no, he is one of the very few you don't want to say elite, but one of the very few people who can maintain, you know, one of the, who who really wants to be in this dimension. And of course, I really, really love his line when he comes out of the giant puzzle box where he's like covered in the rope and then like the garrotes and he just goes, and to think I hesitated, which is like, there are, there aren't very many like really great lines in the movie because Barker, pretty remarkably doesn't use language very much in these movies. I will say that, like, it is kind of remarkable that, like... I'm sorry, you didn't find Come to Mommy compelling? Well, yeah, I actually found that shit super compelling. <laughs> I just thought, you know, I just thought that he only he only uses lines that he can get something out of you, minus the expository sections, which even then, when she's explaining it, like, the opening that just gives us, like, the greatest hits before the credits, like... When she's actually explaining it, it's kept comparatively vague when compared to, like, the way Voorhees is described in every Friday the 13th movie, right? Like, those movies take a very direct, we're going to spend a few minutes to tell you exactly why this man is a stabby boy, but because Hellraiser doesn't have that much concrete to rest itself on, a scene like that has to be kind of weird. Like, she doesn't entirely... Like, I think she's just going off a hunch that the mattress would actually be a thing because she doesn't know because she would have no way of knowing that her father like bleeding into the floor is what caused Frank to come back. She just kind of knows that somehow he came back and that it was related to where he had died, but she doesn't know everything else. And of course, Jannard is a step ahead of her. I second uh, what you're saying about Mr. Barker and I think he had a co-writer or co-director on this. Sorry to whoever you are uh, that I'm not giving you credit, Uh, but to catch up on this, uh, since I went to bed late last night and I, I worked a lot today, I tried to catch up by uh, just playing the film in my car and uh, listening to it. And there are a lot of sections where all you have to go off of 
if you're listening to it, is just uh, sound effects and some light background music. In fact, the music is loudest when people are talking in most cases. Uh, so to try and fill in gaps, especially during that recap part at the beginning, is very difficult because there's not a lot of narration. Uh, that really makes the lines stick out, uh, the ones that he uses. Both the ones that, like uh, you had mentioned, were effective, which I think almost were entirely given to the Doctor, because uh, Kirsty's mostly given... Uh, she kind of... In this one, and I, I'm sorry, I have not seen the first one, so attack me about that later. Well, I feel like with after the cold open, you have seen the first one. Well done. Right. If not, then when Kirsty recalls the events, you'll get it. But in in the first one, uh, I think there was a big role reversal for her here because she comes off as very '80s action hero in this. Uh, I guess the to, to perpetuate the stereotype, she has a lot of. Um, she has a lot of agency on a lot of different levels. Uh, she has multiple relationships with characters in this, uh, in just this one and the previous film. Oh, they cut out the boyfriend, but they quickly replaced uh, anything else they could have. She has all these ridiculous one-liners that you get to hear. Uh, like she says, do you got a ticket to hell? Uh, when Kyle asks how he can help her. Um, the Julia bitch line. Uh, at one point, when she's trying to go get to the mattress, Kyle decides to say, "What are you crazy?" And she says, "I don't know, Kyle. You're the fucking expert." Um, <laughs> so Julia's taking no shits in this film. I did not see the first one, but based off of her narration of it, uh, which was an interesting, uh, I guess, uh, experience I get to have, which is my experience of what happened in the first film is only through what Julia told me and through what Julia told me, she seemed to be much more in a Tiffany role of being a, a victim of the situation. Uh, but she's nothing but proactive in this film. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's like the final act of Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> Nancy's badass all of a sudden. Yeah. Oh, this, this whole film, it's nothing but her being a badass. As soon as caught one person believes her who will let her out. She immediately is like, I'm going to go stop the mattress of doom. Uh, and Kyle is trying to constantly take charge. I think he tries three separate times to be like, no, I've got this. And he ends up getting covered in blisters and the life sucked out of him because he wanted to make out and snog in the dead people room. That happens a lot in this movie. I don't think I wanted that, but I get it. Well, I think it's a natural progression for her character because in the first movie, it's more her discovering these things. And she does start to take an active role once she kind of figures out what it is and how to trick it and, like, manipulate the system. But this time, she knows what's what, and so I think she can take an even more action hero-y role. Like, that la- the only thing that really, like, surprised me what she did, because I was like, oh yeah, Christy's had enough. She's She's fucking done with this shit. And then at the end, when she puts on Julia's skin to trick the Cenobite, that was, like... Full on Mission Impossible. I was like, "Oh damn, she she gonna rip the face off her face." That was fun. It was fun, she did. especially when she ripped like the effects when they ripped off her the skin on her arm and like tossed the skin glove into the abyss was pretty fun. I enjoyed that. Yeah. Oh, that was cool. So uh, I looked up the director. Uh, okay, who's the director of this? Was also the guy who directed the live action Fist of the North Star movie. Oh boy. This dude went from working with Clive Barker. To working on the 90s equivalent to Netflix adaptations of anime series. Good shit. Yeah, basically. 
You got any thoughts? You got any tasty tidbits for us, Marty? I uh, basically just kind of skimmed through the movie because I remembered the plot pretty well. But, like, one thing I did forget was that uh, the scene where Kirstie is, like, showing Pinhead and the rest of the Cenobites that they are, like, human or whatever. I totally forgot that one of them was a child. Yeah, teeth um, chattering, man. Yeah, the like the, the the it was just a kid. He's a kid, and it freaked me out. So good, good on you. You you freaked me out, Clyde Barker. Good on you. Yeah, but I feel like there's not much for me to say that hasn't already been said. I highly enjoyed this movie, um, just as much as the first one, honestly. I think that it builds on it in a really interesting way. Like, the scale is bigger, but I don't know. The It still feels like a natural progression. It does feel like mm-hmm. this is part two. <laughs> it, you, you should play them both, probably, and just cut out the recaps. I It, it really reminds me of, like, how they shot Halloween 2, where it's, like, basically just, like, a continuation of the story that's, like, it... It, like, just segues right into it. There's no, like, pause in between. One thing I love about this one is that it ups the absurdity. Like, during that carnival scene, I was living my best life because I had no idea what the fuck was going on. It was, oh, like, with the baby. (laughs) Oh, God, the baby. The baby and the clowns and then the mother just appearing like, will you help my daughter? And then the mirror smashed, so I guess not. Um, But yeah, I love the first one because the story is, I don't know, it's just so unique in horror when you think about, like, its place in, like, what is it, slasher? Is it possession? Is it, what is it? It's like, it's its own thing. And this one... It's a fairy tale. (laughs) Yeah, and this one, I think, thought about, okay, what can we do to up the ante? And they said, well, let's just go to Hellraiser's place. Let's go to his apartment and just chill. Eat some Domino's. Some buttery garlic knots, man. And I I thought that was a really great idea because they had a lot of creativity with the design and just really expanded on the ideas of the first one. I don't know if I... The thing is, I can't really tell if, like, my critic brain likes this because I just don't care because there's just so much fun gore and hijinks and like haunted house effect that I've just had a great time and that's all I can really say mm-hmm. yeah well I think the movie is great at showing you a great time I mean like we have such sights to show you yeah every bit of the directing just sells it I mean you mm-hmm. can tell that the people who are working on it didn't think that this was just like schlock or a money grab sequel I mean they put the same amount of effort into this that they put in the first film so I think that's part of what makes it so special Mm -hmm. can we we touch on uh, um, Frank also comes back in this one let's not touch Frank he's just as fucking creepy as he was in the first I did not get to experience uh, full Frank because uh, I did not see the first film he's very creepy he hits on his niece I got that part (laughs) Yeah, so that's about all you need to know about him. He basically kind of serves the same role as Julia does in this one, where uh, she, you know, comes out of the mattress and, like, has to, like, get skin and, like, become, like, whole again so that she can continue, like, 
bringing people into hell, I guess, or something. But yeah, he's got, he, he says Jesus wept in the first one. That was him with the, the hooks in his face at the recap. It, for, in the first one, it seems like Frank is trying to escape the Cenobites, and in this one, Julia is more a part of the Cenobites. Like, she never really seems quite scared of them. Yeah. My question that I'm positing for everyone is that Pinhead says to Kirsty, like, oh, yeah, we know that you're curious about us and about this, um, which I think, like, has some interesting implications that perhaps she has unexplored aspects of her sexuality. So my question is, because she, of course, denies it and is like, no, no, I'm just trying to save my dad. But Pinhead keeps saying, well, that's twice now that you've accidentally summoned us, but was it really an accident? So my question for all of you is, do we think that Kirsty is actually curious or do we think that she just keeps accidentally getting caught up in a bunch of hell demons? I think she ends up in these situations because she is determined to save the people who cannot save themselves in the situations that they find themselves in. Um, she doesn't actually... I feel like she doesn't actually want to be a part of the Cenobites. She just, actually, she just like, is trying to keep people from going down the wrong path. Yeah, I think her interactions with the Cenobites are mostly because people in her life interact with the Cenobites. Like... She thinks they have her father, uh, her uncle fucked around with them, so now they come back to haunt her. Her stepmom's kind of involved with it. Um, so I think it's more, she's, she's bear, she's grin and bearing it. She's not really seeking it out. I have a lot of, like, 75% there, uh, <laughs> thoughts. I've got something. Okay, so, it's a common, like... So, like, I've been thinking about this recently because of the weird controversy over the new Joker thing. And the idea that, like, the argument that because the Joker, stories about the Joker often make him out to be, like, most famously the killing joke. A character who, in some way or another, justifies and evangelizes his philosophy to other people, right? The killing joke is a debate in the only way that he knows how, right? The rebuttal to that I've heard is, why would someone like him need to prove himself, right? And I think the key to the puzzle for me, which in in this context is along similar lines with what I didn't think, with, with what I didn't like at first, which is that the Cenobites are human. The Cenobites have made a choice that the vast majority of humans are incapable of making. Wouldn't it be nice if someone who seems the least likely to make that choice really actually wanted to make it? Wouldn't it be nice if Kirsty, who's shown to not be interested in it, and who definitely isn't the kind of person, right? She's She does not fit the profile of anyone else that we know became a Cenobite. I mean... It's, I mean, it's heavily implied that the guy who became Pinhead was, if he's English, probably taking part in either the Anglo-Zulu War or the British Raj, and therefore saw a lot of death anyway. So he was more desensitized. But if they can prove, in some way, 
which is why I don't think the Cenobites are just completely alien from humanity with the reveal that they're human. If they can prove in some meaningful way that anybody could be this, that this is in fact, that they're just not exceptionally sick fucks, that they're responding to a need that's inherent in human beings, that they have the truth, then I think that to them is what they ultimately want. And of course, you know, the movie doesn't exactly take their side, I don't think. Well, can I can I interject and ask a question? Sure, Rick? go right ahead. Well, you say that they have uh, this need. What What is the need you think they are fulfilling? Like, is it, is it a sexual desire? Is it a violence desire? Is it just the, the inherent, like, destruction we all have? Like, I think the specificity of what what do these people get out of becoming a Cenobite matters? And, like, why would they do that? Yeah, and the stories, even back in the book, are really deliberately vague about what their sen- about what their sense of reality is so we don't we're never told like what does it feel like to be a cenobite we're told we're told by frank like pleasure and pain inseparable but frank is also not a cenobite mm-hmm. we don't know because the movie doesn't really visualize for us what that moment of ecstasy is what that moment where they go past the limits of human perception and become fundamentally something else. I mean, Chenard keeps it relatively vague too, and he's the first person we see actually become a Cenobite. And I don't really... I think the movie keeps it deliberately vague what that feels like. I mean, it's... The use of, like, proto-BDSM imagery implies to me that there's definitely something sexual, but the book also implies... That everything, that every part of their body that would give them sexual titillation in, if they were humans, has been removed. The book, I mean, it, it's a very soft implication, one that's not in the movies, but the fact that every defining characteristic of them, including, you know, including the things that would actually allow them to have sexy time, has been taken away by Leviathan, by the weird dimension. So, um,. What, I, what I'm getting out of this is that it's, um, so like, it's a search for, like, kind of like the id, is what you're saying? I, I'm not sure, like, at all. Um, I think, I, I almost wonder if they even know what they're looking for. Yeah, well, it could be a different thing for each one of them, too. I mean, they're all different. People, I think that so... was implied by the the variance of character that we saw. Mm-hmm. It doesn't help that we probably that there's a there's a very limited number of additional Hellraiser movies we could get any information out of because eventually they reach a point where everyone considers them non-canon because they start to get really bad. <laughs> I don't know when that happens. Probably the third one. Well, I think for me a lot of what they're driven, I don't think any of it is like emotionally driven whereas christy does seem to be more emotionally driven like it's all emphasizing sensation like sight and touch and like these this feeling for these people who are just searching for uh, a rush because they feel like they've experienced everything and they've become numb christy is just searching for her family i second that uh in sort of a uh coming of age sort of uh Sort of vain. It seems to me that the people who, now that we have the example of uh, Dr. Trenard becoming a Cenobite, if you will, 
I had, I mean, I, I had not known that we didn't see how the others got created in the first one. I didn't know they just said, poof, howdy do, here we are. Um, that's exactly what the teeth chatterer <laughs> guy is saying as he chatters. Um, Christy, Christy is about the only character who has any sort of responsibility to people other than herself. Uh, and I took that line, like, all of her motivations pretty much are driven on saving or helping or assisting others. And the line that stuck with Kyla about uh, Pinhead sort of threatening or goading or, or chiding or being coy about the fact that maybe she wants to join them, I took as a sort of question as to is her responsibility or her agency uh, really for other people? Is it really responsibility or is it some sort of selfish uh, guilt-driven insecurity or maybe some sort of frustration with the fact that she couldn't get back these people that she lost or help or make this new connection with someone who literally cannot speak. Um, I, I took it as sort of a challenge to her convictions or her virtues because uh, unlike Frank, she's the only one that really has to... the only person who kind of realizes that there are consequences and stakes that certain people will die or that she could die in doing this. Uh, Frank seems to be just surprised that anything bad happens to him at all. Uh, he gets to hell where he was making out with his skinless girlfriend and is goddamn shocked that he is one betrayed two in hell three. It's horrible. Uh, I, I, I took her as despite being probably the most immature character just by age, barring Tiffany, who seems to be, as we talked about earlier, the more innocent, uh, character in the film uh, added by the fact that she basically isn't touched in any sexual way for the most part uh, and most of it's implied and she's wearing all white like the whole movie uh, she has that very the the blonde hair blue eyes always brushed uh, airbrushed face uh, cherubish anyway I, I I took that whole bit as it being very sort of coming of age and maturity being something that requires you to deal with responsibility and take responsibility for things which is something that pretty much only Kirsty is able to do everyone else their sensationalism or their questing for sensation as marty put it earlier uh seems to be very selfish and to the wind and not too much caring what happens to anybody else or realizing the consequences and uh i would like to think that that is why the film is saying that Kirsty makes it out on top doing her mission impossible fake out attacks to beat the shit out of everybody and jumping off there that, was some I, good shit oh, in there somewhere there was there was there was a lot i want to jump off that because i think kirsty i don't think her innocence or implied like responsibility is necessarily a rejection of like all forms of sexuality i think it is like you said taking responsibility because she is never she never becomes servant to the cenobites she never becomes a cenobite she bargains with the cenobites she makes deals with the cenobites she gives information to the cenobites she deals with the cenobites on a a level where she still can be like herself she her skin isn't ripped off her soul isn't completely enveloped by this this entity she she's able to interact with it as herself if, does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, yeah. I, I stick with my theme of responsibility and coming with age mm -hmm. uh, and expand that into all the themes of, and imagery that it likes to imply, whether that be um, sexuality or, or death or killing, that with all of these very, uh, I guess, 
I would say high risk or is a better word here, but very animalistic sort of behaviors um, that what sets you apart from the actual other in this case and makes you a person or makes you human is that you have agency over these things and that you can make bargains with them and that you can choose when to use them and when not to. And I think Kirsty's about the only person who manages to, uh, to do that. That's a, that's that's my theme wrap up there. Yep, thank you very much. Uh, I, I gave I gave all my good quotes. I don't think I have another good quote from the film. Most of them came from Kirsty. She was just laying them one after another early on. Well, my favorite thing is when the the si- Tiffany like speaks for the first time, other than like screaming no. She's like when the giant chode man bursts through the wall. She's like oh shit. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, that one was good. That's correct. I like the look. Uh, what do we think about the look that um, Pinhead, when he gets turned back into a human, gives uh, gives Kirsty is? There's that moment where he like looks at her as that's almost to say like I got this or run or Gandalf's little fly you fools thing. There's like a little <laughs> bit of a smirk or a, a, pri- a pride thing, and she she then takes off and then he he sits there and waits to die. What is that all about? That's what that's what I wanna wanna. Ask. I feel like that's uh, if if they hadn't made like sequels, I feel like that would have been a good ending to the story based on the fact that he is finally taking responsibility for his actions. Oh, there we go, bringing it back. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. I don't know. I think it's just like a camaraderie, mm-hmm. like. Which we also kind of feel, and I think the filmmakers know that we feel that camaraderie because he's given a hell of an intro. Uh, yeah. With <laughs> this huge, grandiose music, he walks out from a column of light. That uh, they're like, yeah, in the same way that uh, Aaron used a, a metaphor when talking about the It films uh, with me over text. Uh, that in the first film, I think it's a, it's a rule that goes for most horror films, Aaron. Uh, that in the first horror film, the villain is uh, the the villain is usually uh, heel doink, and in the second one, the villain becomes uh, doink with dink. Uh, we all know him. We all know his dumb little son. I am the Ross only other person in this chat room who knows uh, doink the clown. I, uh, I I know that's why I had to fill in some 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 gaps a little bit, but for the most part, I'm throwing it. Aaron was pretty concise and, and tight with his wrestling metaphor he had thrown at me for it. And I think that applies here, too, into uh, horror films in general. By the second one, Pinhead's not so scary anymore. He's, he's our buddy. He's our pal. He gets the big wrestling entrance there. I guess the idea that, like, horror films have to, like... Because, like, the, by, by, by later installments, the memetic, the stuff that can be most easily memed in a horror film is the stuff that shows up in the sequels. Because if it couldn't have been easily memed then it probably would be much less likely to actually get sequels. Right. Uh, I have to go. I have an appointment. I appreciate uh, everybody having me on. I didn't know it would run this late, but I guess it was inevitable because uh, we had lots to say. Sorry to, to run short. Uh, All right, Thank Tyler. you very much right. for having me on your show. Uh, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Hope I managed to uh get some good stuff out there and uh I'll think on this. Won't sleep on it. Uh I never sleep because sleep is the cousin of death. I kept callbacks to a minimum. 
real fast before you go, do you want to give the people, is there anything you want to promote or plug? Promote or plug? Uh, can I promote or plug uh, the three of you? Is that possible? Marty's action figures again? I don't have anything. <laughs> uh, I don't have anything to, to plug other than uh, you guys, my pals. Uh, Aaron deserves nothing, but they deserve the world. <laughs> it's, it's a joke. It's a joke. I love you, Aaron. All right. All right. Thank you all very much. Uh, catch you guys later. Bye, Tyler. All right. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Are there any other thoughts we have about the movie? I guess we're, we are approaching an hour of recording time. But are there any last things? I think we covered just about all of it. I do want to give a shout out real fast to the special effects in this movie. Yeah. Which are fucking bonkers. Oh my god. Like yes. Julia's skin like when she comes back and she's just like meat and she's missing her skin and the detail like on her spine mm-hmm. and her muscles just looks incredible. Yes. It's wonderful. You are correct. Yes. My little geeking out. I'll I'm so into practical effects and and gore effects, Mm -hmm. and I think the Hellraiser movies take the cake for that. So I definitely thoroughly enjoyed that. Yeah, no, I I think this is a great sequel. Yeah, it's up there. It's definitely not as good as the first one, but it, it definitely lays down some really good practical effects and production, and it's a good plot. Um, again, I think I still actually enjoy this just as much as the first one. I don't know. They just feel like they go together, I guess, for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I I like the first one better just because, I don't know, it has this very somber feel to it. And a lot, it's kind of like Discovery. And I, I just really love that sense of like, what the hell is happening? This one feels like that, but to a much different degree with more... Mm-hmm whoa like you said kylo this is bonkers rather than kind of slowly creeping up on you it feels like someone just drop kicked me into a fun house and i i love it i love it for a very different reason how about you aaron i think it's really i think it's inherently hellraiser must have been one of the most inherently difficult 80s properties to make a sequel to well at least horror properties because you couldn't just do like oh we're gonna do the first but with additional stabs so the fact that they found an interesting way to continue to continue on from the original um, could find compelling ways to keep the momentum up, I think is I think is pretty impressive to me that it granted they would not do that for much longer as far as I've heard regarding later Hellraiser movies, but they managed it for at least two. So that's, you know, that's well above the Mendoza line for horror franchises. Yeah, they, I guess that about wraps it up thank you guys so much is there any anything you all want to promote anywhere you can be found um well i i guess i'll just do the normal plug um you can find me on twitter at frosty the r zero bot uh i got links to my art stuff uh, you can find me by turning that cube into a diamond-type prism, and then, boom, there I am, hiding in a box, ready to give you a big ol' hug. Ooh, I love hugs. I'm not on social media anymore. If I ever sh- if I ever wind up on it again, I'll let everyone know where they can find me, but as of right now, I'm living 
monastically, for lack of a better word. Uh, you can find Netflix and Kill on Twitter at Netflix underscore in underscore kill. My personal Twitter is Kai the Jedi. And um, check out our host network, Lunar Light Studio. They are fantastic and amazing, and they have so many cool shows. And uh, all of those can be found at LunarLightStudio.com. Thank you guys again. This has been fantastic. Happy one year anniversary. Happy one year. We survived. We thrived. We went to the depths of hell and and we came back. And we're all the better for it. Hell was full, so I'm come back. (laughs) When there is no more room in hell, the dead will podcast. Hell yeah.